Oh, good morning, Miss Yo. Um, yeah, my name is Joel, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you. Um, if you would just take a moment and just pray with me, um, I'd appreciate that. Loving Father, we come to you this morning and open the word and just know that your word is for us. It's meant to encourage us, inspire us, and also instruct us. So we come and we desire that. We desire to be um, people who follow after you and people who uh, are true to your word. So be with me as I take us through this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there's, there's times when, well, every time I step up here, there's a great kind of weight that, that I carry, a burden to, uh, to do justice to the word of God. And sometimes I think that's, that's probably the wrong posture because Jesus is going to do what he's going to do. Holy Spirit's going to do what he's going to do. But um, as I prepared this message this morning, um, it was just hard. You know, there's sometimes in the word of God, it's, there's just instruction that is really hard for yourself, for your family, for the community. And um, this is one of those. And so we've been in a series called um, This Is My Body, Seven Letters to the Church. And I want to kind of just jump right into it today and not have an intro, not have a hook or something to inspire you. Um, just let's just dive into the word um, because there's a lot here. My goal today is to, to cover uh, two letters in Revelation, one to Pergamum and, to the, and the other to Thyatira. And the teaching team decided to couple these together because they're, they're very similar. They're like the same, but they're different. It's, it's like when I travel to Vietnam or Thailand and I'm out shopping and they're like, there's a blue shirt and there's a black shirt. And the person says, yeah, same, same, but different, right? And they use that term a lot in, in Southeast Asia when you're shopping. It's like the same, same, but different. It's a teapot, but it's a different color teapot, right? These two letters are the same, same, but they're different. We'll see that both um, are called out on the same issues. Issues of food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality. But they're different because it's happening for different reasons in the church. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the main points right up front because I don't want you to kind of go, what, what's he, where's he going with this? So hopefully as I give you the two main points, you'll be able to track through and, and for yourself, see how the scripture is talking, what the scripture is talking about. The two points are this, Jesus is committed to passionately protect the integrity of the church. Jesus is committed to passionately protect the integrity of the church. You'll see that as we read through these letters. The second one is, it is 
possible to not renounce Jesus, but restrict his influence in your lives. It's possible to not renounce Jesus, but restrict his influence in our lives. And you'll see that as we go through the scriptures. Now, one of the things that I was wrestling with this morning as I, I was driving here is that um, when we read the letters to the churches, right, when we read Revelation, sometimes we take this posture of like, this is a harsh rebuke. This is like the religious of the religious type of like scriptures. And we read it in a tone that is just like, smack you upside the head, fire and brimstone. But I want to remind you that when, when this letter was written, John is writing because he sees a vision from Jesus. And Jesus tells him, write this down. Write these letters to the churches and write these warnings to all of the churches. And Jesus is the same Jesus in Revelation as he is in the Gospels, right? Sometimes we read it with a different tone, though. When we read Revelation, sometimes we read it with that, like, fire and brimstone, like, smack you upside the head type of tone. But I want to remind you that Jesus is merciful, Jesus is kind. Jesus is always loving and he's gentle. He desires for us to come to know him. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus isn't a pushover. He is stern when he needs to be stern. He is justice. He is fair. But he's loving. And so as we read these letters today, would you... Hear it in that tone, a loving call to repentance. Let's start Acts 2, 12 through 17. To the church in Pergamum, Pergamum, this is what Jesus says. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some to, of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So Jesus says to Pergamum, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, 
Pergamum is an educated city. They're known for this vast library that held over 200,000 scrolls of text, of, of, of philosophy, of, of just, I mean, it's the Greek, it's Greek, right? It, it's all this information, 200,000 scrolls or more. And Jesus says, my words are as sharp as a two-edged sword. So you need to listen to my words. The words that would cut through all 200,000 scrolls. The ones that influence your mind, influence your thinking, influences your everyday life. And then he says, I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne, where Satan's throne is. Pergamum is a city that had hundreds of temples and idols. The city um, had all these, all these places of worship. But behind the city stood a, a giant hill with two temples that, that went up over 2,000 feet. One of the, one of the places of worship was Asclepius. And Asclepius, who he was thought of as the god of healing. And the symbol for him and that religion was a snake. A snake. And we know that in scripture, Satan's compared to a snake, right? The second temple was in honor of a great, the greatest of all Greek gods. And we know who the greatest of all Greek gods is, right? Zeus. The savior is what they called him. So there's these two big temples on the back of the backside of the city, 2,000 feet above. And that's what Jesus was referring to. What you need to know is that the church of Pergamum sat in that city. And Jesus was saying that this is the throne of Satan. Satan was the king of this city. He had captured the ways, the minds of the city, the politics, the medicine, the religion, the entertainment, the influence of Satan and other gods were the philosophy of the culture. And Jesus said, Satan sat on that throne in Pergamum. He goes on and he says, Jesus commends the church for standing firm against the bombardment of these ideas and these philosophies. In verse 13, the second half, he says, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. You hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. The church in Pergamum stayed faithful even when members of their own church were being martyred. One of them, Antipas, was martyred for, kill, for, for following Jesus and staying firm in his faith. They killed him. So they're known for that. The church is known for that. Is they stood firm. Again, so this is where Jesus calls them up in 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to... Uh, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. 
so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaeans. Jesus is calling back to an Old Testament story in Numbers where King Balak of Moab, he wants to conquer Israel. So he asked this guy, this prophet, Balaam, to come and curse Israel. He says, come and curse Israel. I want to conquer them. So Balaam goes and he tries and he tries to curse Israel, but he can't because God has blessed Israel. Balaam and Valak come back together and they go, what do we do? So they scheme and they go, well, if you can't beat them, have them join us. So Balaam says, invite them into your festivals. Invite them into your parties. Invite them into joining our culture. And remember, Israel is supposed to be set apart. They're God's people. But the Moabites invite them in. And slowly they join in the festivals where there's drinking and eating of food that has been sacrificed to idols. But it's just one time. It's not a big deal. And then they're invited to more. And those parties become places of sexual promiscuity and prostitution. But what happens in Moab stays in Moab. It's okay. It's all right. It's just one time. It's not a big deal. You can still worship Jesus and still have it all too. This is where Israel stumbled. They didn't renounce God, but they allowed the lifestyle of the culture of Moab to enter into the church. The thinking, the practices, they adopted them all. So Jesus holds that same thing against Pergamum. Although the church was vigilant and holding the front line, even to the point of, of going to, to die and be martyred, they allowed and compromised inside to the ways of Moab or to the way of the Nicolaeans, right? The Pergamum was following the Nicolaeans who had the same, the same philosophy. So here's the point. It is possible not to renounce Jesus, but restrict his influence in our lives. They didn't renounce Jesus. They even died for him. But they were restricting the influence of Jesus in their lives. Let's jump to Thyatira. Here's same thing, but different, right? Verse 18. And the angels of the church in Thyatira wrote, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose, whose feet are like burnt brush, burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patience, endurance, and that your latter work exceeds the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. 
I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned that what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on your, you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule, rule them with an, a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's a lot there. And what is difficult is that there's not much more that we know about Thyatira. Like archaeology, all the studies, there's not a lot known about Thyatira. We do know this, that it was the center of worship for Apollo, the god of sunlight. And he was thought to guard over the city. Apollo was thought to guard over the city of Thyatira. And there was the emperor, Domitian. He thought he was a reincarnate god. And he named his son the son of God. And on his, on his coins, Domitian portrays the son, his son holding seven stars on the coin. So Jesus starts his letter to Thyatira, the word of the son of God. The word of the son. Jesus calls himself the son of God, the one with eyes like a flame of fire, the one with feet that are like brushed bronze. I am the son of God. I'm the one that actually has fire in the eyes. I am the pure one with the bronze feet. He reestablishes who he is. Because remember, Jesus is committed to passionately protecting the integrity of the church. He needs them to remember who he is. He is the son of God. So he reminds Thyatira. And then he commends them. In verse 19, he says, man, your works, your love, your faith, and your service, and your Patience, your endurance, it's commendable. But I have this against you. You have tolerated that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to sexual practices of immorality and eating food practiced to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent. Is there really a woman 
in Thyatira named Jezebel teaching in this church? Most people don't think so. But it's a callback to Old Testament again. In the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, there's a queen named Jezebel. She marries the king, King Ahab. King Ahab is the northern kingdom uh, of Israel's king. And so when they get married, Jezebel influences Ahab and says, let's worship Baal. Baal, the god of nature. She opposes the worship of Yahweh God. And then she goes out and hires 850 prophets of her own to spread her teaching, her ways, her ideas. Anyone of the prophets of Israel who came up against her, she was willing to execute and would. She was nasty. She did not care about her subjects. She neglected them. She didn't care about their well-being. She was more concerned about her rule and her reign. Her teaching created conflicts that plagued Israel. The church in Thyatira tolerated a similar voice. Someone like Jezebel, who was teaching like Jezebel. Some of the teachings that were being taught was this, Gnosticism. God only desires pure spirits. Our body is irrelevant. God only desires pure spirits. Our body is irrelevant. They were saying, you can do, you can eat whatever you want. You can do any sexual immorality you want. Your body doesn't matter. It's apart from your mind and your soul. They're not connected. But we know that the Bible teaches, we know that Jesus teaches that we were created in the image of God, that we are connected body, mind, soul, and spirit all in one. So whatever we do, whatever we eat still is connected and it affects us. In everything we do, we are spiritual. Jezebel also teached, teached a bad theology of grace. Do whatever you please. God knows your heart and he forgives you. You see Paul in his writings to the, in the New Testament constantly battling this one, right? Should we sin more since we have grace? Should we sin more? It's like this argument that because we have grace, we can just do whatever we want because God will always forgive us. That's a bad theology of grace. So we have Pergamum and Thyatira, both fallen into idolatry, eating foods sacrificed to idols, falling into sexual immorality. Those were the big things of the day. They're different, though, because Pergamum has been influenced by the culture, allowing it to slowly mix in like a frog sitting in warm water until it boils and then he's cooked.
the ideas, the ideologies, the philosophies, they're all influencing the gospel. And they're all opposed to the gospel. In Thyatira, they tolerate the bad theology because it suits their desires. This fits what I want. This fits what I desire. And so, yeah, we can sin. It's fine because God will forgive us. They give into the pleasures and the seductions and justify a framework of theology that works with their actions. In both cases, in both churches, we see it is possible to not renounce Jesus but to restrict his influence in our, in our lives. Friends, I can say that Jesus is my savior. I can say that Jesus is my rescuer, but then I don't take the next step to say Jesus is my Lord. You hear the difference? I can say Jesus is my savior, he's my rescuer, he forgives me, but I'm not willing or ready to say Jesus is my Lord, to come under his kingship, to come under his rule, his teaching, his ways. I'll take the grace that Jesus extends me, his forgiveness, his love, his salvation, but I'm going to hold back my worship and my obedience because it's too hard. Or maybe I'll just give a little bit at a time. Not all of it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. He calls it cheap grace. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. It is not a gift of God. Cheap grace is baptism without church discipline. It is communion without confession. It is grace without the cross. It is grace without the cross. Bonhoeffer is saying that cheap grace is simply grace without Jesus, which is really no grace at all. When we say grace, it's like a gift, right? It's a gift that we don't deserve. And Jesus is offering us that. And we take it. But then we, what do we do with it? Grace actually requires transformation. It requires repentance. It requires us to in turn, worship. One who worships Jesus submits and surrenders their life to Jesus. Will we allow Jesus to shape every part of our lives or just some parts of our lives? To what degree do we give ourselves access to Jesus? What degree do we give Jesus access to our lives? What degree do we allow Jesus to shape our lives? You might be saying, Joel, that's a lot. That sounds kind of extreme and honestly sounds religious. But friends, this is, this is what Jesus is calling us to. 
God went to extreme lengths to extend his grace, his son to us. Where Jesus comes here on earth, lives a life apart, lives a life with us and going to the cross and dying for our sins. That's what we believe as Christians, right? That's the grace, that's the extreme grace that God has extended to us. And we are quick to receive the salvation message. We're quick to receive the forgiveness message. We're quick to receive the mercy message. But boy, is it hard to actually fall under the Lordship message. Is it enough? When we receive that gift, does it change us? Do we say, thank you. I want to live for you. I want to submit my life under your rule and your reign, your lordship. In every part of my life. Because it is possible to renounce, not to renounce Jesus, but restrict the influence he has in our life. I saw this quote from Rich Velotis. One of the ter- one of the terrifying realities of spiritual life is we can be committed to Jesus, committed to the name of Jesus, committed to the person of Jesus, committed to the truths of Jesus, but not have the truth and the person of Jesus shape the way we live in the world. When Jesus is not shaping our lives, our Christian faith, our Christian witness doesn't look any different from the culture around us. It carries no salt. It carries no light. And even more tragic is the world looks at a professing Christian and God's church and says, they are no different than me. If if anything, they are worse. As a, I think about it and I'm like, how is it possible that people can identify as a Christian and still be blatantly racist? How is it possible to pray to Jesus and still pray on the weak and the lowly? How is it possible to confess Jesus as Lord and still curse people who don't see eye to eye with me politically? That is what happens to the church when we do not submit ourselves to the teaching of Jesus and the word of God. We mix and mingle all these other thinking and philosophies into the church. That's where Jesus says, I am the word, a two-edged sword, and I'm going to slice through and I'm going to show you truth. As a church today, we are rarely coming across questions of like food sacrifice idols. Sometimes we do. In our Asian American cultures, we, you know, you you burn incense to to idols or pray to ancestors. But a lot of times, more of what we face is sexual stewardship, financial stewardship 
Christian nationalism, racism, injustice, imbalance of power. We are facing those things in our culture every day, and we have to go to the word to find truth, to sort through what's right, what's wrong, what's gray. Every day we are seduced by a culture around us, telling us one way or the other. Will we take our talking points from Jesus or the culture? Will we define success in the ways of Jesus or success in the ways of the world? Will we resolve our conflicts in the ways of Jesus or the ways of the world? Monsieur, will you allow Jesus to be your Lord, to subject your lives under his lordship. So I don't want to be too heavy-handed and be like, call you out on these things. No, when Jesus is talking, he's calling you up, up into grace. He's inviting you into something else. In verse 17, he says to the church in Pergamum, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some to some the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. How do we figure what's going on here? Jesus will give you the hidden manna, those who persevere. And remember, manna, again, is an Old Testament throwback to the food that the, the Israelites had in, in the desert. Every day, God would provide manna and just enough. And you weren't to take more, you were just to take what you needed. And then the next day, there was more, more manna. He will sustain you. He will give you what you need. He is enough each day. That's what Jesus is saying. That's his invitation. Now, what about this white stone thing? There are dozens, I mean dozens of interpretations of what this white stone could mean. Here's one that I thought just, it just hit me here. Jesus will give you a white stone with a new name on it. When two friends were about to part, they would divide a white stone in half. Each friend would inscribe his or her name on one of the halves and give it to the other. It became the symbol of their friendship and the symbol of their promise to maintain their friendship as long as the stone lasted. Jesus is promising intimate friendship to those who overcome. His name on your half. Your name written on his half. It is a new name that he writes on that half. A new identity that he gives you. It's crazy. It's not like that little, like, heart, those little hearts, that best friend heart ones, like one half you get and the other half you get. This is like a new name on this rock, broken in half, you take this side, you take this side, I'll write my name here, you write your name here, and we'll hold on to it. But here's the thing, Jesus gives you a new name. 
He'll give you a new name, one that only you know and he knows. That's the promise. Transformation, redemption, a new life. He continues in verse 28 to the church in Thyatira. I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to these churches. This idea of the morning star. The morning star appears at the darkest of time at night. They say it's somewhere like three o'clock in the morning-ish. It usually emerges at that point, And when the night is at its darkest, it comes. When it appears, there's no sign of dawn. There's no sign of daylight. That faint star begins to get brighter and brighter. And then you know that at the right time, night cannot withstand the dawn. Night cannot withstand the dawn. It is just a matter of time until the dawn wipes out the night. The morning star pulls the, the morning star pulls the morning in behind it, just as certain as Jesus pulls the kingdom in behind him. You see that visual? The dark night. The morning star just shows up a faint little light. Then it gets brighter and brighter to remind you. You can't hold back the dawn. Jesus is the morning star. Remember who Domitian thought was the son of God and the morning stars. Domitian thought his son was going to hold up seven stars. Jesus says, no, I am the morning star. I'm going to usher in the new kingdom. And you're not going to be able to withstand the darkness. The dawn is coming. I am the morning star. That's the promise. So in those times where we feel like this is too hard, I can't persevere. I want to give in to culture. I want to give in to sin. I want to give in. Remember the morning star is coming. And you can persevere through the night. Guys, I wish I could give more. But Kelly won't let me. <laughs> now, if we could just sit and un unwrap the riches of these passages. But here's what I want you to ponder this week. Where are you restricting Jesus' influence in your life? Where are you restricting Jesus' influence in your life? How are you receiving grace without responding in worship and obedience? What are you tolerating in your life that is not pleasing to God? 
How is the surrounding culture shaping your life in ways inconsistent with the ways of Jesus? Last one, where is sexual flippancy happening in your life? There's so many more questions that you can develop out of just these letters, right? You can spend a lot of time just thinking and meditating on these questions. What I want to invite you into is a time of response um, just in the few moments we have left together. I want you to interact with some of these questions and, and on the sides, uh, I put four tables with rocks. And on those rocks, if you would take the time to just go and write on, on the rock, either a word or a phrase that, that answers some of these questions, that, that gives you thought to some of these questions. Where are you restricting Jesus? What are you tolerating that is inconsistent to the teachings of God? What ways are, is the culture shaping your thinking and your actions? How are you being sexually flippant in your life? And so when you take that rock and you write down that word or that phrase, it's an act of repentance. It's an act of confession. Saying, Jesus, I don't have it right here. I don't, I don't have it right. I need to offer it back to you. I've been holding back this area of my life, restricting your access to me. And then if you would take that in the act of repentance, an act of confession, and come to the table where we each week come and we, we look at the symbol of communion and say, this is Christ's body broken for me. This is Christ's blood shed for me. This is God's grace. Take the rock and put it into this bin. Go back to your seat and receive communion, God's grace. And my prayer for you is that when you receive God's grace, then you can also receive and offer your life up as an act of worship, all parts of your life, and worship in obedience this week. As these rocks collect, it's not a call out on just one person's sin, not just your sin, but as a, as a church, as Missio, we have collective sin. No one's perfect in this room. I could dump a whole bag load of rocks in here and it would still going. But what we say is that when, when we're coming together as a collective body and saying, this is our sins, and we want to be a church of confession, we want to be a church of repentance, we want to be a church that follows Jesus, that worships Jesus, that allows Jesus to be Lord of our lives, Lord of our community, Lord of this church. 
that we'll sit here and we'll pray for each other. We'll walk with each other in those times of brokenness. So I invite you as the band plays us in worship and, and we sing and we meditate through music, would you go and, and write a confession, a repentance on that rock? And remember that there is grace extended to you for the forgiveness of your sin. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be individuals who allow you to be Lord of our lives. Allow you access to all areas of our lives so that we don't become like the church in Pergamum or the church in Thyatira, so that you don't hold things against us, but that you are able to extend grace. Lord, you are gentle, you are kind, you are merciful, you are graceful, and you are passionate about your church. So as a community, we come and we ask for forgiveness. As individuals, we need your forgiveness. And we pray that you would begin a new work today in our lives. Holy Spirit, come. Just reveal what you need to reveal to each person today. In Jesus' name, amen.